Mr. Robot Season 3, Episode 2, Undo, is over, but we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps, recapping the latest episode of Mr. Robot. Hello, everybody. I am Josh Wiggler, and it's been one week since I talked to this guy, Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, how are you? Look what you did to me. You one week rolled me. This is not fair, Josh. You did not tell me that was going to happen. Now it's going to be in my head all day. It'll be in your head all day, just like Mr. Robot. Antonio, how are you, sir? Uh, doing well, doing well. I Listen, as far as I know, no, there are no devices installed on my computer following what I'm doing. I've been looking over my shoulder a little bit more since Mr. Robot premiered a couple weeks ago. The paranoia is coming back, Josh. The loneliness is coming back. Mr. Robot is definitely in my head. Mr. Robot is definitely back. Mr. Robot is here. We are talking about the second week of season three of the 10 episode third season of USA Network's Mr. Robot, a collaboration here on Post Show Recaps and The Hollywood Reporter, where we've got tons of stuff up there on THR already, including our weekly chat with Corridana, which we will reference a ton in this podcast, as well as Sam Esmail. And I'm not going to say the name of the actor in case you have wandered into this podcast by accident and somehow have not watched episodes. Episode 2 of Season 3 yet. Let this be your only spoiler warning. Get out of here now. We're about to dive into some super serious spoilers beyond the fact that the bare naked ladies are referenced in this episode in a pretty great way. Okay, are you gone? Are you? Are you out of here? Do you think everyone's are you, gone? Are, are, they, still, they are you still there? Are you, are you watching? Still, Did you, you see something here? I didn't? All right. Well, whether you were supposed to leave or not, and you haven't successfully turned off the podcast, let me just say I have an interview up with, very tragically, with Stephanie Corneliuson, who plays Joanna Wellick, or I should say played Joanna Wellick, as we have, we have lost our first series regular. That's the first series regular to get killed off on Mr. Robot, which is a really big story that we will talk about a lot. So interview with her, interview with Sam Esmail, interview with Cora Donna, all up at THR.com slash MR Robot. Our podcasts will be hosted here on Post Show Recaps. PostShowRecaps.com slash Robot is our new URL to subscribe to our show. Your ratings, your reviews, very much appreciated, Antonio. Not yours specifically but the listeners are you saying i shouldn't do it no you can if you want to but i feel like uh that feels like uh kind of feels like a cheat i think it would help though it's certainly an exploit if itunes allows me to do it <laughs> i should probably do it right yeah i think that sounds right <laughs> yeah no everyone else's uh ratings and reviews are appreciated they help us get noticed they help people connect to this podcast see it on the itunes charts etc so thank you to everybody who has already subscribed or who has already left a review and if you haven't done so yet please do so but uh without further ado josh if that even qualifies as a do but we should i mean is the top story is certainly the death of steph cornelison do we want to address that right from the jump well, not the death of Stephanie Cornelius. Oh, we should, she's not we, dead? We, we should say she is very, very I alive. I saw, though, Josh, the top of her head was removed. Oh, was that my just God. movie magic? That was movie magic. It was movie magic. She is alive. She is doing fine. <sighs> she she is okay. But unfortunately, Joanna Wellick is not. It is the end for Joanna Wellick. Joanna here. Wellick. Uh, it's upsetting. It's upsetting. We have lost a really, really big force in the universe of Mr. Robot this week in, um, in like a very chaotic kind of random act of violence sort of way. I mean, I guess not totally random. Uh, something that Joanna invited into her world by manipulating Derek, the waiter who she was sleeping with throughout season two, who she had convinced to tell the world that Scott Knowles was the man who killed Sharon 
Knowles or at least implicate him in that murder, which we as a viewer know is all false. Tyrell is absolutely the guy who killed Sharon Knowles. Um, she goes on this, you know, this Alex, Alex Jones type guys show. What's this dude's name? Do you Frank, Frank Cody. Cody? Frank Cody. Frogs in the water. Yeah, it's Frank Cody. Freaking Frank Jones. Cody. He actually Go- talks about Alex Jones. He's not Alex Jones. Uh, but he's he's there and she's on the show with him and I guess is like bad mouthing uh, the the whole situation and clearly making it clear that she has no love lost for this poor Derek who then goes and takes that stress and takes that sorrow and disappointment and channels it into murderous rage and kills Joanna Wellick. Yeah. And man, if you had asked me to predict things that were going to happen this season, like maybe Joanna Wellick dying wouldn't have been super low on the list, but Joanna Wellick dying in this way i'm i'm floored i'm floored antonio how are you feeling having just recently done like a very thorough full rewatch of mr robot about the death of joanna wellick at this point and in this way i'm florida yeah i i would not have even picked joanna wellick in a death draft if we were to have done one I've, i famously or not so famously because like there was any fame attached to it but i did draft gideon goddard before season two because i thought well that's the death of a character that would really change the emotional stakes of the series he's the only good for in the world seemingly so taking him off the board right away in season two did make a lot of sense to me and honestly after reading what what you wrote with uh, what you what you wrote up at thr after you talked to sam esmail and Coridana about this it makes sense as well and it certainly makes sense in the context of the rewatch that i did where we saw extensively throughout season two the true manipulation of Derek. we saw him drunk on his birthday upset at joanna wellick the night she shows up with her divorce papers we saw him be you know he hurt my girl I'll, I'll, I'll kill him i'll do whatever we saw he was willing to do whatever it took to put scott Knowles down after scott Knowles went off on joanna so we've seen that rage from him before too and you mentioned chaos although you indicated it's not really chaos it does make sense unfortunately in the world we live in and certainly the world of mr robot uh, intimate partner violence domestic violence is a very 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 real thing but people get murdered like this hundreds of people every day in the country so most murders probably have some sort of motive that is very similar to this attached to them, unfortunately. And sometimes they get flagged as murder-suicide. Sometimes they end up differently. But this is certainly one of those scenarios. I don't know why Joanna went on Frank Cody's show and did the touchdown dance that she did, Josh. I think we should definitely talk about that. And what was that hubris? Was that was there some other goal in that in that mode? Or was what was the motive of that action? But certainly it seemed like that action really set Derek off. And then our boy Mr. X, Donald Sutherland, and, uh, who almost got himself killed and maybe seemingly survived this scene. He, he also escalated the thing. He didn't need to beat the hell out of Derek and treat him the way he treated him when he got out of the car. That seems like it made it worse. So this was just a, it seemed like it, it belonged in the scenes as they developed. But you're right. I don't think we would have seen it coming as we were predicting it coming into this season. Uh, everyone played this poorly, you know, like everybody, yes. every, everybody yes. made their worst move in this situation, except, and- like, except poor baby Wellick, <laughs> except, except Dexter uh, Morgan Wellick there. Oh, my God. I know. Very Dexter-esque indeed. Uh, poor baby Wellick. I don't know what the baby's name is, which is bad on me. Uh, but it's not even going to be whatever the name is because it's the baby's going to social services, apparently. Oh, boy. Yes. Orphan, oh my- orphan Wellick. Yeah. Uh, Can you which- imagine? 
is not far away from uh, it, it, there's something like that in Joanna's backstory, if I'm remembering right, isn't there? Or am I completely making that up? Off the top uh, she of my also head? had a previous child that she That's gave right. up for adoption. Yeah, and she actually I think maybe met the parents, but she was very young, so she has two children now floating around out there without their birth mother, not knowing really who their birth mother is, and now their birth mother is gone. Uh, yeah, we don't know who those people are. We don't know if this will ever come back into the story of Mr. Robot. I don't know if that was just a character note for the FBI to send poor baby Wellick to social to child services. But yeah, that's the uh, that's the future there for Dexter Morgan Wellick. So not a great not a great ending for anyone in the Wellick family. So just to like put some of these points out there in case you haven't read or listened to anything involving uh, the creators of the show talking about the Joanna Wellick death scene. Uh, this is Sam Esmail's explanation. He says there was no external factor here. Stephanie Corneliuson told me the same thing. This was not a matter of scheduling difficulties or anybody wanting off the show. Uh, Esmail says we felt like we had told her story. Was this always in the cards? Yes. The timing was never pinned down. But when we started breaking this scene, Season, that's when we knew the stars aligned, so to speak. We knew this was the right time. Uh, the balance here is look at what Tyrell did in the first season. For a seemingly irrational reason, he murdered a completely innocent woman. Now he's getting away with it scot-free. We felt that in terms of Scott, yeah, Scott Knowles free. Sorry. I know. Sorry. I can I can smell it on you, Antonio. You really smelled on my breath and it smells like red wine. Go ahead. I know. Esmail continues. We felt that in terms of the justice of the universe, there had to be a price that was paid for that. that that's our way of balancing it out, so to speak. So Joanna dies as cosmic justice for Tyrell Wellick killing Sharon Knowles. Um, you know, I, I listen. I need. I I love this show. I love Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot has rarely let me down. Uh, I need to see how this story is going to play out. I am sure that this is not the end of Joanna Wellick's involvement in Mr. Robot, even if she is getting killed off. But right now, just based on everything that was invested in this character, I have to admit that aside. From from the fact that it was like a really excellently constructed scene. It was very shocking in the moment. And the follow-up uh, in uh, with the autopsy oh. and everything <laughs> is, is so like spectacularly dizzying and nauseating. And really just, you know, really, you know, punctuates the point of, yeah, she dead. She's dead. She's super dead. And, you know, having that kind of be the last visual we have, at least for now, with Joanna Wellick is her, um, is her body on a slab in such a graphic way. It's really chilling and appropriately nightmarish for a character that really thrived in, in the nightmare territory. Um, I have to say, all of that said, with just how much we were invested in Joanna, the way in which she's going out, I don't love it. I got to be just straight up. I don't love it. And I'm, I'm waiting to see what the ramifications of it are before I'm really on board with the necessity of killing Joanna Wellick here. I don't know if I'm alone on that, Antonio. I do feel like it fits in the universe. I will say that we had talked offline a little bit and bringing that into this conversation. Now it, 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 when this is not, I know she's the first series regular to go, but we lost Gideon Goddard in shocking fashion. Romero just ended up dead on the, the floor of his, the outside of his mother's house. Uh, We've had other characters killed off seemingly out of nowhere. Uh, Shayla was a, a really brutal death that we could see coming, and that, that had a little bit of that cosmic justice element to it with Elliot's actions. And so we've lost characters in the show in Cisco at the end of last season before. Uh, and it, sometimes it felt like, okay, that makes sense. And sometimes it felt out of nowhere. And wow, I can't believe that just happened, like with Gideon. So I think the show has done both. Uh, with Joanna, though, I do think that as 
as you go back, if you're when we're when we have all the things we know about season three in the can, when we finish the I'm sure what is going to be the incredible thrill ride of season three and we go back and we rewatch season one and two, we will have to see what the mileage out of those Joanna stories in seasons one and two are compared to some of the things that we're getting out of other other characters or real plot driven things. These are more character driven moments and the character is now off the show. So I think we have to go back and look and say we put a lot of plot investment into Joanna. We talked about whether she might have been a dark army agent. We talked about what her ultimate role in the show would have been. Who was she controlling? Why was she paying the parking lot agent? What was her end game? You had a great interview with her last year. I believe it was for THR where you talked about what was her plan and, and Steph Cornelison basically said like I, I think it's like she's like a fox. She's like digging her way out of different situations and constantly leaving herself the ability to get out of these situations and so we talked a ton about this character from a plot standpoint. Where was this headed? And I don't think either of us would have said oh it's headed for her to be shot uh, in season two in a very dramatic and disturbing way and then we're yeah, going to midway see into the second episode you know, Midway kind of just the, yeah, not season unceremoniously, season right? Yeah. Unceremoniously at the beginning of the second or in the middle of the second episode of season three. I don't think we would have had that on the board. So it will be interesting to see when we go back and track that uh, what, what we get out of this uh, this role in the show from a character standpoint, not so much from a plot standpoint. And that said, there are a ton of plot ramifications, obviously, as you see, you want to see how things play out clearly uh, how this will impact Tyrell as much as I hate evaluating a especially a female character's death through that lens. Um, that's a lens we have to consider because that is a major shoe that's going to drop. The FBI was also very concerned about covering this up. How will other characters react? The public? Is this another body that Elliot can put on his wall that he'll feel guilty about? Uh, is this something that, that he will feel? And that's the other part from a plot standpoint that does actually concern me now, Josh, when we have Sam Esmail talking about a sense of cosmic justice on this show. What does this mean for our other characters? When now this show is establishing, yeah, we live in a world where you're going to pay for your actions, probably. Uh, if you do something like this, it's going to come back on you. And we've seen that happen with Cisco and Romero already. We, I'd say Shayla was more of an innocent bystander, and certainly Gideon was as well. But where is the cosmic justice going to land for people like Elliot, for Darlene, for Angela? Right. That's a great concern to me now that the show is firmly saying we have cosmic justice in our universe, and this is why Joanna Wellick died. Remind me to ask Sam Esmail a question whenever I get the chance to interview him next, if I am lucky enough to talk to this man again. Because the question that I would be curious to know is, to my recollection, I can't think of Sam Esmail, you know, doing the George R.R. R. Martin thing and talking about how the end of A Song of Ice and Fire or Game of Thrones, if you prefer to think of it that way, will be bittersweet in some way, shape, or form. I wonder where Mr. Robot will log in in the balance of bittersweet. I would expect more bitter than sweet. And I yeah. think that th I think that this cosmic justice comment from, from S-Mail and how Joanna dying here kind of helps settle some sort of balance and that characters suffer extraordinary consequences for their actions should tip us in the direction that 
this whole thing might not have a very happy ending. I think that we, we, we would be wise to brace ourselves in that direction. So that's something that I'd be curious to know from him. Other than that, I would say um, I'm with you in terms of the assessment of Joanna's death. And there is absolutely historical precedent within the show's universe for characters getting killed off very, very suddenly um, and seemingly inexplicably, uh, or at least just, you know, like kind of, uh, you know, in, within the moment, random, uh, you know, seemingly random, you know, wh- whether it's Romero getting shot the way that he, you know, the way he dies, uh, and how that's just kind of presented to us in this very casual way, uh, or even the fact that Cisco is killed in the way that he is killed, and we only experience that at like a very dreadful remove, right. um, you know, having to watch from Condiments a distance, conspiracy. right? Exactly, and having to see that and like really kind of wallow in that for a while before getting full confirmation of what had happened. So Joanna's death fits comfortably in that realm, um, but the what what is the juice we're squeezing out of this is what I want to know, and we won't know that until we get deeper into the season. So I'm I'm holding out to to see where that goes, but I do hope that if it doesn't at least fill an entire goblet, I hope that it's a delicious <laughs> shot, whatever is coming our way. You know, like whatever is coming out of Joanna's death, I hope it is potent stuff, um, and I expect that it will be because Mr. Robot for me is a lot more hit than miss, but I am holding out the possibility that this one won't fully add up for me. Uh, we will see. Uh, beyond that, do you want to start digging into the episode proper, Antonio? I do, yeah. And I think that uh, I think that ultimately, I think it will be worth the squeeze, as you're pointing out. I feel the same way. I, I, know, I don't mean to say just because a female character was killed, you're u- ultimately inviting TV tropes. I think this show's smart about those sort of things. And I do think that whatever happens in the wake of Joanna's death, they will have made a really good something of it. So I'm hopeful and I'm excited to see that play out. Well, we start the episode in a very happy place. Uh, I guess E-Corp is now a happy place, yeah, Antonio. it's a new sensation, uh, Josh. It's, it's a new sensation by who? Who is the band that is performing <laughs> new sensation? I, I believe this is uh, Australian <gasps> hit makers in excess. Ah, oh, that sounds correct. That definitely yes. sounds familiar to I, me. I, they have a they have a song, Suicide Blonde, I think it was called, and my aunt uh, back in the 80s thought it was Soup and Salad Bar. Uh, she that sounds like a great song as well. Soup and Salad Bar on the radio was. It's Suicide Blonde. So yeah, in excess, in excess. New sensation. Yeah, Elliot's found a way to hit undo, Josh. Uh, you know when you crash the entire world economy and kickstart the inevitable, inevitable downfall of human civilization? We all have those days, right? Everybody has a day like this. Everybody has those first day jitters as you're going to the new job. Everybody starts their new daily routine. Not all of us ride the subway with people wearing emoji on their face. Uh, but I mean, really kind of we do. I mean, we're all staring at our phones. We're all typing emoji at each other. Yeah, and I'm sure there are a lot of people in the audience and in the world who are on antidepressants, who are taking some form of a Zoloft, who look at the world through those 2D emotions. And so I thought that that was particularly resonant. There are definitely some season one vibes here, Josh. We talked about the uh, Steal My Sunshine when Elliot decides he's going to watch the Marvel movies and drink Starbucks and have a girlfriend. I think we're 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 having vibes of that back to some of the season one stylings of Mr. Robot, which we talked about a little bit with last episode. I thought this was a fantastically orchestrated sequence josh just the the pacing of it it's probably over eight minutes long this whole sequence with the song playing and elliot scanning his id we have a time jump here of several weeks we've gone since uh, the events of last episode but i think it's all covered fantastically we see elliot at his new job we see elliot is not going to undo the hack but he's going to prevent stage two josh and he's getting into that right away 
Yeah, he can't undo the hack, right. but he, he, you know, the, the data cannot be decrypted. That is not an option here, but he can stop stage two from going into effect. And to that end, there are a few different ways that he is trying to do this. This was, I asked Cora Donna in our weekly column, if you could just lay this out for us in a palatable way, because there's a lot going on here. So I'll just read this three pronged ap- approach that Adana outlines, if you'll allow me, if you'll indulge me. Please do. Me. This is good. Yeah, because uh, this is very informative about what's going on here. Okay, so this is what Elliot is up to. Uh, point number one. At the end of season two, in order to start rebuilding their database, we learned that eCorp was shipping all of their pertinent paper documents, titles, deeds, loan and debt records, etc., to their New York recovery building. To buy himself some time, Elliot's hacking into the eCorp shipping management service, eShipping. With that access, he's able to reroute the shipments of paper documents and make sure they don't arrive in New York. However, in the eShipping manifest, he's creating a mirage and making it look like the original shipments are arriving. Anyone who takes a look at the manifest, like the Dark Army, would think that the paper is getting moved to New York, when in reality, it isn't. Yeah, this That's is the really funny scene. One. Yeah, this is the really funny scene we get, right? We get a couple of them that we see, you're not in Sioux Falls, Earl, or you're in Sioux Falls, Earl. Like the, the, the confusion over the Sioux Falls paper, and is it going to be delivered to New York or not? The manifests are confusing. We see a couple of snippets of that. So that's what Elliot's doing, is he's confusing the paper delivery. But Josh, I think this gets to point two, that presents a problem, because the Dark Army might think that the papers are on site and go ahead and execute stage two anyway. All right, so stage two of Elliot's anti-stage two plan. Oh, this, this is confusing. <laughs> this is this is the se- the second point in uh, in uh, in Elliot's three pronged approach, according to Adana. Just in case the Dark Army figures out a way back onto the E Corp network and decides to run stage two themselves, Elliot decides to patch the UPS systems in the recovery center. The plan for stage two is to install a new malicious version of the UPS firmware that would result in an explosion. Elliot installs a patch on the UPS system to ensure that no firmware updates can take place without digitally signed keys from eCorp. Essentially, Elliot is protecting the UPS firmware and making it very difficult for the Dark Army to modify it. I think that the without digitally signed uh, approval from eCorp is a key element in this plan. Because, Josh, can you think of any high-level hackers who are working at eCorp right now? High-level hackers who are working at eCorp right now? I'm drawing a blank. Oh, yeah, you're probably drawing a blank, friend. Maybe a blank-faced emoji. But Elliot is there. Now, Elliot, as Mr. Robot, we talked about this on our last podcast. What would Mr. Robot in eCorp do? What havoc could he wreak? And here's a perfect example of something he could do he could elliot elliot as elliot elliot as good-natured elliot elliot as trying to undo the hack elliot is installing this software to prevent stage two's overheat process to take into to take effect and all it's going to take as elliot mentions and as Coradana mentions is ecorp installing a digitally approved in in their own signature like we as ecorp are approving this software uh, version of a software like that's what needs to happen now in order for any software changes to be made to those battery sources well elliot as mr robot could 
conceivably do this. This is something I'm planning a flag in, Josh. I don't think that that line is on accident, that E-Corp could approve this. Somebody at E-Corp could be put in a position where they're doing this, and it feels like Mr. Robot, as Elliot, is the most likely person to do it. Yeah, it's exciting. You know, like, this is the whole, this is a, this is a huge factor in why it's so great to have Elliot at E-Corp right now. Uh, not only because it's subversive for the character who has talked about, you know, this place as Evil Corp for so long that it's like, it's a little bit of a head scratcher to kind of like now get to a place where Elliot would want to be here and maybe even view them as a necessary evil corp, uh, you know, and to, to try to, I don't know, he's kind of in, in some ways not quite satisfying the Angela plot uh, or the original Angela plot where she thought that maybe she could make some changes from within, but it's not terribly far away from that. It's but not. At- at the same time, Elliot has this other side of him that is disintegrating from him. Mr. Robot and Elliot aren't speaking right now, and who knows what Mr. Robot could do with Elliot's E-Corp access, and that's why this is such a tense dynamic right now, and really exciting, and I think that that is a flag that is well worth planting right now, that Mr. Robot could really fudge Elliot's plan based on this aspect of Elliot's plan. Yeah, I mean, you can't... He says, I can help them rebuild the database and defend the fort at the same time, the problem is you've got at least one double agent in the fort in Elliot slash Mr. Robot, a double agent who is not in control of himself. And then you have Angela there as well, who we know is aware that she's placed him inside Evil Corp and is working for the Dark Army. So she theoretically is monitoring what he's doing. She could be doing that. She could be in a position where she wants to bring Mr. Robot out. She's the one who got in the job. You would think there'd be some level of oversight on what he's doing, because that's the third part of this josh and this is the part that that elliot is really working on he's not going under the radar he's sticking his neck out and really pushing his way up the corporate ladder getting on a lot of people's radars including maybe the fbi although he's doing it anonymously because of what he's doing as the third part of his plan to undo the hack yeah, some social engineering uh, yes. is going on here. Elliot doing his favorite thing, which is talking to people. Uh, the third and final part of Elliot's plan, according to Cora Adana. Elliot is also attempting to wade through the corporate politics at E-Corp in order to push his own recovery consolidation proposal. He knows that the plan to ship all the paper to one location is a risky move that creates a single point of failure. So his proposal is to keep the paper where it is and digitize it. If E-Corp scans all those documents, there can be multiple copies of it living in different places, which makes a mission like Stage 2 impossible. Unfortunately, there's a lot of red tape and bureaucracy that Elliot needs to navigate before making any real progress with this plan. Uh, and that is a that final aspect of that final point is a big source of joy in this montage where Elliot, you know, we've already evoked Dexter Morgan once before. This is kind of like the fast forwarded, like you can imagine the version of Mr. Robot that is like bringing down the monster of the week like that could have been the format for this show instead of this heavily you know narratively driven serialized series that we're now three seasons into you can imagine the scenario where Elliot is taking down E-Corp boss after E-Corp boss after E-Corp boss but instead they just like really yada yada through all of that and show you like there's this guy who's getting busted for sexual harassment there's this guy who is getting busted for otherwise abusing his position of power and they're all just being shown the door 
door and Elliot is working his way through these guys like bosses at the end of a stage so that he can talk to the one person who is going to actually approve this plan. And it's very funny. Very, very good stuff. Yeah. And even when he's done with working his way through the corporate ladder, he starts picking off people just for fun. For funsies. Just just (laughs) random E-Corp executives. He's saying basically like, I can take the evil out of E-Corp. And he starts calling it E-Corp again, Josh. This is a this is a big deal for Elliot because right away from the first episode of the series on, we as an audience are conditioned through Elliot's conditioning to think of this company as Evil Corp, uh, to think of all of their products as evil this and evil that, to hear Evil Corp on their commercials, to hear other characters when they're talking to Elliot refer to it as Evil Corp. This is Elliot's conditioning that that we are used to, and he's undoing that conditioning in part by trying to make the company less evil. So this is a this is a new Elliot for sure. Elliot says, I'm not selling out. I'm just growing up. He talks about how the fact that calling them evil was his dorm room philosophizing run amok. Josh, I'm interested to talk to you about, do you think there's anything meta in this? Do you think that this is representing a writer's room or Sam Esmail himself taking a different view of their own first season of the show when Elliot was doing this? Or is this just character growth that they're remarking upon with this change in Elliot? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say whether this is, you know, growth um on the writer's part or if this is, you know, baked into the to the, you know, central thesis of Mr. Robot. It's certainly a far cry from the Viva la Revolution of season 1, you know, <laughs> like good. the you know, like the big rebellion and and the fact that this we're the re- we're the rebellion, we're the resistance and they are the evil empire and it's you know, it's, you know, point and quick, cut and dry, very simple, black and white. Um, we're, we're a long way from that. And I think season two did a lot of great work in getting us to realize that after the five nine hack, like, it's not like you just flipped a switch and magically the world is, uh, you know, you know, sunshine and unicorns. It's a, it's a, pretty dark place and season two was like very very grim dark and i think we covered this in our first podcast of the season of covering the season premiere of this idea that within the writer's room there was a reaction to the role that they felt they played or didn't play enough of in um the way of the world right now and and getting you know to the place that we are in right now which is a very uncomfortable and not great place as far as many of us are concerned and is that a sudden realization or is that part of what this has been building toward that this is kind of part of a point that Sam Esmail and the writers are trying to create I'm not really sure but I do think at the very least it's the point that they're living in right now um, I'm sure that there are other shoes that will drop in terms of the overall statement that is that is um, being expressed here in the totality of Mr. Robot but for season three's mission statement and for the view of Elliot as it currently stands I do think that it's reflective of where the writers are as well. Yeah, and I love that. I love that because Mr. Robot is a show that seems self-aware. It, it exists in a world. It exists in our world, but it's also an alternative world that has taken a little bit of a sidetrack. We talked last episode about that epic rant that Elliot goes on where he sees the future a little bit and he sees what could happen from all these things. And that's the big moment, as you point out, that we talked a lot about in that last episode on our last podcast where we really got into how the show is viewing itself and its place in the world. And that was uh, a great Great answer that Sam Esmail gave you for The Hollywood Reporter, where he talked about how 
look, the, what's happening in the current world certainly influences what we're doing when we write, and we'd be dishonest to keep that out of the show. So I thought about that when I heard Elliot, the character, the, the titular character of Mr. Robot, uh, in that, in not Mr. Robot mode, in Elliot mode, actually playing, you know, self, a little bit of philosophy here, like we saw in, in the first episode, the little bit of self-analysis. Now, granted, this is a Zoloft-influenced Elliot, so that's an interesting aspect of this. His view is different when he's heavily medicated, when he's on this, this course of meds that is designed to make him feel better about his place in the world, designed to, to dull his emotions, and maybe designed to make him feel like new sensation is playing all the time. But he's doing good things, too. That's the thing that's always been interesting to me about Elliot Alderson is let's say the walls come crashing down. The FBI does bring him in. Isn't he, isn't he going to be able to point to and say, remember when I turned in that warden in the prison in season two? <laughs> well, not season two, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not that self-aware. Uh, but yeah, remember when I did this? Remember when I, that was me. All the E-Corp executives, that was me. Like I, I'm wondering on, on some level, is the FBI going to put all that together? Elliot Alderson shows up at E-Corp and within days, all these people start going down and getting turned in. All these anonymous tips start coming in. This can't be that anonymous. I think Elliot probably would have talked to the FBI when he turned in Ray, the warden in the prison in season two. So this is a guy who isn't purely black hat or white hat. He's worn both hats as a he hacker. He prefers hoodies anyway. Yes, black hoodie. Uh, so he's worn both throughout the course of the series. And I think that this is an interesting thing to add to his I'm a good guy arsenal. Uh, and it's fascinating to look at Elliot through this lens. It's also fascinating, Josh, because... Because this, as we talked about, time is passing while this is going on. Elliot talks about how only 17 of 71 of the facilities have currently been moved to New York. But we see in other elements of this episode, which we'll get into, that stage two is fast approaching. We're talking like a matter of a couple of weeks uh, between where the events of this episode and when we think stage two might actually pop off. So I don't know if stage two is going to pop off with all the documents in house, with some of them. It seems like Elliot really has slowed things down. He actually gets, he finds a sympathetic ear at the corporate level to get into the digital elements of this plan. So I don't really know uh, ultimately if stage two is going to be extremely effective, highly effective, or just a loud noise. But Elliot is certainly seemingly preventing it from being as serious as it could be. Well, if we're, if we're tracking timeline in terms of when stage two could occur, just to fast forward to elsewhere in the episode with the meeting between White Rose and Philip Price, Philip Price is going to tell White Rose that he's going to have the UN vote to annex the Congo in 11 days. And then after that, White Rose is going to say, I want stage two to happen on the day of the UN vote. So if it goes White Rose's way, stage two is 11 days away. 11 days away. Now, we know it might not go White Rose's way, both because of the work Elliot's been doing, which may or may not be monitored by Angela, uh, as well as the fact that Elliot told Darlene about stage two. And as we see extensively in this episode, Josh, uh, Darlene is a CHS. She's a confidential human source. She's giving info to the FBI. So did she tell the FBI the specifics of the stage two plan? If that's true, there's no way stage two is going to go off the way that White Rose is planning. So certainly stage two is looming over the events of this season. Elliot is making efforts here in the beginning to try to placate, uh, or not, not placate, but to try to make it a little bit less impactful. It, guess remains to be seen how that will play out. 
to talk again about Elliot and uh, his E-Corp experiences, it's not all going so well for him, even though he says, friend, it feels great. And that line delivery, by the way, followed by the explosive Mr. Robot title reveal is spectacular, as spectacular, usual. Yeah. Um, but we're going to see, like you mentioned before, that Elliot is not doing so great in his personal life. You know, he is lonely again. He is consumed by it, and he forgot just how awful and low he could feel. And Dancing with the Stars isn't helping. Gary Busey is not the uh, is not the antidote to his problems. <laughs> is it the antidote to anyone's problems, Josh? I don't think so. I don't think he is. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is true. Dancing with the Stars from 2015. Not hard to see how we ended up where we are when we go back and look <laughs> at the fact that Gary Busey was dancing it up and we were acting like everything was fine. Uh, no, yeah, everything is not fine. It isn't just that, right? It's that the world is dark around Elliot. We see it in the background without realizing it. Right before we see Elliot in his apartment crying, we see him walking back to his apartment. And some of the things we see, and we've seen it earlier in this sequence. We see apples in the subway. Elliot is scanning eCoin for apples. Apples in cash, Josh, three for $25. Three for, three, 20, three for $25. These are not Apple products. These are actual apples. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah, it's the economy bad. is really bad. We see lines at the bank in the background as Elliot's walking by. We see a, a woman selling hot meals on the street for eCoin. Uh, we later hear about some other things that are being offered for scanning QR codes. Uh, this is a dark world that Elliot is living in, and it's a dark world that he created. So there's, it's not a surprise that some of that's coming back on him, especially when we're talking about if we're hitting the reset button and we're taking it back to what it was like in season one, uh, and we're getting back to that Elliot himself articulates I forgot what season one was like he doesn't say season one but he says I forgot what it was like when I used to be this way uh, I was really lonely I was upset I was crying in my it's a, almost a mirroring of the shot that we see in the premiere episode in the pilot episode where Elliot is leaning against a piece of furniture in his apartment by himself crying sobbing Josh uh, so you can't just fit you can't just hit undo when you have the problems that Elliot has and I and we're seeing that really play out in a in a very unfortunate way in this scene that ends up, Josh, with the sad crying emoji in the mirror. It does, but what's making me have a happy emoji is the result of this is more scenes with Krista, with his therapist, right. uh, where those se those sessions have resumed, and Elliot is back in Krista's, uh, I guess, her home office. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, she says that her landlord was not really paying utilities because of everything that happened. So this is Elliot's fault, too, that he now has to go to Krista's house, and his therapist has to meet patients at her house. Uh, that's her house. That's her home office. I feel like I'm a little scared about that. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I'm a little nervous about Elliot Alderson knowing where Krista lives. Let's just and hope it's because they lost the location where they were shooting before. Let's just hope it was that, and it's not I'm, something more I'm, sinister. Yeah, I'm a little worried because, of course, we're going to see later on, in the episode that uh, both Elliot and Krista are going to invite Mr. Robot into the therapy session. And so Krista is now going to very much be on Mr. Robot's radar. And Elliot is going to be confiding things in, in Krista that he has not confided in her before. He is really being an open book. He's talking about Kevin McAllister, Antonio, the home alone snowman of it all. Uh, and that is a, apparently a fairly um, you know memorable detail of a moment in 
in time that we've heard a lot about but didn't know this aspect about yet of when Elliot was pushed out of the window by his father, Edward Alderson, that apparently he has not told Krista before but feels like he's told Krista before. So he's just kind of like really, really casually volunteering incredibly personal details about himself just without really even thinking about the impact of that. And you could just imagine him like telling her something he really should not tell her about stage two or the dark army or something that is crucial to Mr. Robot's plan that Mr. Robot would now have the means and access of like going to Kristen. Who knows what? Like I'd be very, very, I'm very nervous about this character right now. I don't, I don't like it at all. It's bad because it it already played out in this episode where Kristen meets with Mr. Robot and Mr. Robot says she compromised us. And then Krista tells Elliot, what were you, what did you mean? She compromised us. And Elliot's riding the train home asking us, like, what did she, what do I mean? Like she compromised us. Who is she? How are we compromised? Elliot starts asking himself these, himself these questions that he wasn't privy to. That he's only privy to because Mr. Robot, the guy Elliot can't control, said it to Krista and Krista said it to him. You can imagine when Mr. Robot realizes that that's a leak, that that's a problem. How do you fix that leak? That's a concern that I have. And I think you're merited in having it as well. I'm very concerned about that. That said, you're right. I love the fact that it brings Krista back into the show, Elliot's sadness. And even though it puts me on edge, I think this is a phenomenal scene. I mean, Elliot's talking about how he forgot it was his birthday i want to talk to you josh about the implications of the fact that he swears he swears josh that he told krista before that his dad shoved him out the window this is news to krista in this dimension is that what's going uh, on here? I don't, I don't want to trigger you. I don't want to trigger anyone in, in the audience. But this is a this is a point we have to talk about, right? Because this is at uh, least this is at least Lindelof bait. This is s mailing. What's going on here, Josh? Interesting. So you uh, you're you're going down the rabbit hole or the robot hole rather of parallel dimensions and parallel universes, which is certainly it's on the table. We saw we saw a collider in you know the first sequence of this season, and parallel universes have been brought up by uh, by White Rose herself uh, in Minister Zhang form and it was introduced again in that sequence not just from what we saw inside of the power plant but also what we heard inside of the power plant by one of the lead technicians there uh, look if you're tracking it it's worth tracking um, I'm not gonna I'm not willing to take it too seriously yet uh, I think I would be inclined to chalk it up to Elliot just misremembering we've seen Elliot slip on you know similar situations situations um i think that it's more in line with that but if you want to think that like elliot maybe if parallel universes are in play and elliot maybe has some sort of cross universal access to that like that hurts my head like i don't want to have to think about that stuff until i absolutely have to think about it I know, I know, and I get that. And I, I don't think we need to get much more into it other than to say trigger warning. Like, this is certainly something that if you're on that train, if you're talking about that, if you're in the collider speeding around and you're wondering if you're going to run into something, this is something I think that would set that off. And I think it's only exacerbated by the way that this scene ends. By the way, phenomenal scene, acted on both parts, uh, it, just the way that it scored Mac Quayle in this episode, in all the episodes, but really in this one especially, this scene, the music 
builds and it gets so ominous by the end of the scene when Krista is like, what made you think of this just now? And Elliot pauses the and Rami Malek just looks so just forlorn and gone. And it's an extended look at his face as he's trying to think about maybe what made him think about it or he's thinking about what made him think about it. And he, he comes up and he just basically says, like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. And that's how the scene ends. There's a ticking clock that's going throughout the course of this scene and the other Krista scenes, I think, which really adds another dynamic to the tension in these scenes. It's almost like a metronome just steadily going in the background while all of this is going on. I do think this builds to a conclusion where we're probably asking ourselves the same thing. Why was Elliot thinking of that? Like, why is that a memory that's linked to his birthday? Uh, is this something that we should be tracking? Are these events wiped out in his brain? And when you think of one thing, like your birthday, a happy moment, you think of another. Is this the happiest we've ever seen Elliot in terms of his memories when he's thinking about Kevin McAllister, the snowman? Uh, he sums it up by basically saying, not much to it. Dad pushed me out the window, broke my arm, went to the hospital. Kevin melted. Dark Arlene was pissed. End of story. It's all one sentence, but this is a memory. And I think anytime you get into Elliot and his memories, especially in the same conversation, that it's a forgotten memory. He's mixed up something that he thought he'd done before. And now he's telling another story. And we'll talk about this again when it comes up, when Elliot mentions it to Darlene. I, I think this is something we, we should track. I think this is a conversation we'll revisit uh, multiple times throughout the course of this season, because it is getting at something that's going on in Elliot's brain, whether it's disintegration or whether it's something more that I think that if it is something more, when we, when we look back on, once we find out what that something more is, this will have been a signpost that we can point to and say, remember that scene? Like this is a scene where we can point back to and say, Oh, that's why he didn't remember it. Oh, that's why he thought of it. Or maybe it's just here, Josh, to add to the disorienting feeling of season two. I don't know, but that's what we do on this podcast. We talk about scenes like this. Well, I don't feel like there's going to be like any kind of reveal down the line that like Joe Pesci is the bad guy or Macaulay Culkin is the bad guy. Like that's not what right. I'm getting out the, of like the wet the, bandits aren't going to come into play here. I They're mean, not I don't know <laughs> the, the sticky, the sticky court bandits, the sticky uh, bandits. Yes, yeah. exactly. The sticky court I, bandits. I don't, I don't think that that's, I don't think that's where we're going with this home alone development, but I do think what it represents the most for me, aside from being like a really great scene and learning that there was some joy on this very dark day that was very formative for Elliot, um, the lens is pulling back and we are learning something new about that day. And that day has been something that has evolved since the start of the show, or at least since the first time we heard about it, when Elliot is talking to himself, as it turns out, to, to Mr. Robot in Coney Island and then falls over the railing because he's jumped, uh, but believes himself to be pushed. Um, we have, you know, the first scene of season two shows us uh, right. parts of the day. Um, so we're learning more about what may very well be like the formative day for Elliot Alderson. You talk a lot about the toxic swamp uh, that gave life to, to Elliot and Mr. Robot and Angela being, you know, everything that happened in Washington Township and the eventual demises of Elliot's father and Angela's mother. But I think that this very likely is a toxic swamp of sorts from which Elliot and Mr. Robot were born. And we don't have the full picture on it yet. 
get and hearing about this snowman that was very important to both Elliot and Darlene um, and having Elliot say the words end of story about this story strongly implicates to me that that's not the end of this story and there is something very big that happened on this day beyond what we already know uh, or at least something um, quietly important that we don't already know maybe something that White Rose did or Philip Price did that is away from Elliot that just so happens to coincide with this day um, but I think that this this very bad day from a long time ago I think is going to prove to have some very important resonance in the future so uh, let's chart that we will we will definitely track that as we go forward we next go to the Joanna Wellick stuff which we have talked about at length where do you want to go with this is there anything else you would like to add to Joanna at this point I just do you have any theory as to why she did this why did she go on the Frank Cody show and do this was she signaling to Tyrell at some point I mean it really did feel like spiking the football on poor Derek to say I have and always will be faithful to Tyrell he's the only man I've ever loved and the only man I ever will love and I, I just don't know why she's doing that I get why she wants to put herself out there and say look I I now am, am saying publicly that it was Scott Knowles who killed who, who killed Sharon Knowles I don't want to be implicated in that anymore I don't want my husband implicated in anymore I'm presenting a strong front and that's that I'm just wondering why she went on the Frank Cody show that seems like it seems like hubris maybe that's all it was she's flying too close to the sun she wanted to be part of this glamorous life where she's on TV and she's noted but she she felt the negative aspects of that in season two extensively where people were throwing blood on her and doing horrible things to her baby that's mentioned a little bit that harassment that she talks to Frank Cody about so I'm not sure why she'd be inviting more of it by going on TV and putting this out there I think that that's interesting I don't know what Frank Cody's game is uh, and I don't know if he's the one who asked her on I don't know if he has more of a game it's interesting that he's we're seeing him live in the flesh for the first time I think on, on in this season I don't know if that means we're going to get more of Frank Cody or not but I do feel like if you're talking about a show where Sam Esmail has admitted that what's happening in the current world certainly influenced what they were writing in the writer's room, then certainly the fake news element and the the element where those fake news stories are driven by someone with an agenda, I wonder where Frank Cody's agenda is. And I wonder if that plays into Joanna Wellick's story at all, or if she just decided she wanted to go on the show. I have no idea. I just think it's interesting. It's really a dumb thing to do in hindsight, but hindsight is, of course, twenty twenty. Well, maybe this isn't she, 2020. This is a Frank Cody show. <laughs> well, maybe she feels that's good. Maybe she maybe she feels that she is speaking directly to Tyrell, right? Like maybe she yeah, that's feels what is, is it signaling, right? Right. Like, you know, maybe she feels like, you know, this isn't an act of hubris. Maybe this is literally like I'm I'm speaking to you, Tyrell. This is the only means that I know of like directly communicating to you that I have. Like she, you know, had feelings of like, is Tyrell the guy who's like heavy breathing on the phone? Clearly, Scott Knowles has been heavy breathing throughout season two. <laughs> But like, is he out there and is he watching me? And if so, maybe I'm getting a message to him this way. Yeah, maybe. I, I, I think that's a very likely motive for why she is doing what she's doing and seems so matter of fact and adamant in what she is saying, especially about the he's the only man I ever loved and the only man I ever will love. Um, she, so had that's, the, she had the earrings on, too. She had the earrings on that were the first gift that Tyrell ever gave her, the best gift she's ever received, the cheapest thing that she owns. Right. The earrings that were a trophy of Tyrell taking them off of a woman uh, by sleeping with her at a party and giving them to Joanna. She had those on. You could see them. So you're, you're right. I think that that's a, a huge element. I just wonder if there was something potentially more in play or if this is just her signaling Tyrell somehow. Yeah. 
I think that that's what it is, but who knows? I mean, either way, gets her killed. Yeah, not great, Bob. Yeah, because Derek sees this, and Derek doesn't like it, and Derek is jilted, and Derek is jealous, and Derek is murderous. And all of those things combined together for a very bad moment. Um, I don't know why, indeed. Listen to your heart. Yada, yada. (sighs) Joanna Wellick is dead, and it's terrible, and everything's horrible. Yeah, just awful. Uh, shot, as we talked about, shot in the head, shot Mr. Sutherland. He didn't die. The scene itself is shot wonderfully. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of great stuff going on there, but horribly, horribly, horribly upsetting in so many ways. And then followed by that horribly upsetting autopsy sequence, uh, which the FBI is involved in. The FBI, now Josh, not really present in, in, in the first episode, but certainly very present in this episode. We start that with a new F Society video. Who is this, Josh? Yeah, somebody, uh, Mr. Monopoly Man himself has showed up and has a new F Society video, and who knows? Who knows what that is? What, do you have theories behind it yet? I, there, I feel like it, there's, it could be several people, right? I think that when the, the, they signal the, the, the FBI, and it was Santiago and DDP talking to Darlene, say this was the same Vimeo, uh, Vimeo account we used for the pre, you used for the previous video. Well, in season two, episode eight, it is Trenton, Josh, who uploads the previous F Society video with Darlene to Vimeo. We see Vimeo on screen. We see that it's the Vimeo account. So we know that Trenton has access to this. And I think it's interesting that Darlene is protecting Trenton and Mobley seemingly by saying this isn't one of my guys. How does Darlene know that? That said, I think the, the eagle eyes on Reddit seem to have spotted a beard uh, when the character is turning to the side. I don't know who that could be. We haven't seen a bearded character on the show. Uh, is this somebody that we have? haven't seen before is this I, I, timeline wise it's very confusing uh is this video recorded as it's released was it recorded six months ago i don't really know because all it's doing really is signaling stage two right it's talking about how there's going to be a big explosion you're going to explode your, your your eardrums literally so it's certainly a warning about stage two directly so this would have to be be, re- be released by somebody with knowledge of stage two and as far as we know on the show that's darlene it's Elliot, it's Tyrell, uh, and it's it's White Rose and White Rose's valet. We don't know anyone else that has direct knowledge of Stage Two, so I don't know how Trenton or Mobley would know about Stage Two unless the Dark Army told them. So I, I don't really know that there's great proof over who this would be. Yet. Do you have any theories? No, not really. I honestly haven't thought too much about it because I'm more focused on the confirmation that Darlene is working with the Feds. Yeah, uh, like that's that's a big deal. This I think is it real- was yeah. It was pretty clear, but yeah, this is abundantly clear here. It was, it was clear, but it's, it's rough to have it confirmed and especially rough when you then think about, you know, uh, how this applies with like the future scenes between Darlene and Elliot where she's going to like tell him like, I'm leaving town. I'm going upstate. I'm going to go crash with a friend. And like all of this, you're just, you're, you're straight up lying to the guy because you're, you're working, you're working for, you're working for the enemy as far as you guys were concerned. Uh, it's, it's tough. And this is, you could just imagine a personal hell for Darlene. Uh, like the last thing that she would want is to be teaming up with the man. 
Yeah, but it sounds like what she's trying to do, she has immunity if she's able to get information on Wellick. They're pushing really hard about Tyrell Wellick. Santiago yells at her and says, your job is to get intel from Elliot on Tyrell Wellick. Like, we see that that's what people want. And Darlene is denying that Elliot and, and Wellick even work together because Elliot told her that. And that's what she's saying. Like, five weeks ago, which is your timeline from the from the last episode, five weeks ago when we ditched your tail, he, he told me, like, well, had nothing to do with this and then they play the the prison call for her the call from season two at the end of the first uh, episodes where elliot is talking on the phone to tyrell which we speculated did it even happen we see the recording now it definitely did happen uh, and we now know that that is a real call that tyrell for whatever reason decided it was a good idea to call elliot while he was in jail i guess josh that love is just so real and tyrell couldn't keep away he listened to his heart. He listened to his heart. Yes, it was a new sensation for him. Or maybe not that new, uh, as we've seen from the context of the show. But yeah, he listened to his heart, and he called Elliot in jail. And this definitely seems to take uh, Darlene by surprise a little bit. We've seen her. That's happened repeatedly now with her in the FBI. I don't think her motives are ultimately to hurt Elliot. I think her, her motives are, I'm in a bind, and they already have me. I'm caught. I, what I'm trying to do now is put us as as far out of the crosshairs as possible. I'm trying not to hurt you, Elliot. I'm trying to put us in a position where they get info on Wellick through you, and we're given some kind of immunity, or maybe I can work a deal for you through this, the fact that I've helped them. I, I feel like that's what Darlene's after. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe people feel differently. No, I, I feel that. Yeah, that, that's good. I'm glad to hear that you're on the same page. Yeah, I feel that. I think that that's right. I think that, you know, it would be really out of character for Darlene to suddenly be like, no, F you, Elliot, like everything that you've done has led us to here and I'm burning you to the ground. Like that does not feel in character for <laughs> well, Darlene at all. But maybe she gets there by the end of the episode when she meets Mr. Robot. Yeah, it's not where Darlene is now, uh, but it's where Darlene could be going. Uh, right, you, right, you know, like that's right. definitely possible that Elliot could cross a line that would get Darlene to feel that way. Uh does not feel to me like Darlene feels that way yet, though her interaction with Robot is very frightening indeed. Yeah, speaking of very frightening, then we get the Joanna autopsy. Perhaps uh, we don't need to talk about that anymore. But well, if you if you're curious, that article that I have that's an interview with Sam Esmail and Stephanie Corneliuson uh, has some wonderful behind the scenes uh, images from <laughs> Stephanie Corneliuson's time on the autopsy slab that she graciously provided for the interview. So uh, go check that out if you're curious. If you want to see what she looks like as a smiling zombie, because that oh, exists. Oh yeah, maybe she'll get another. Uh, maybe should get a Walking Dead roll out of this, Josh. Yeah, not, not if she's lucky. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Uh, Fear the Walking Dead, then. Perhaps Fear the Walking Dead. But hey, Josh, Fear the Walking Dead, bounce back season. When yeah, you bounce back season. But Josh, actually, there there's something else going on in this scene besides her brain being cut open and photographed multiple times. And what about Dark Army Santiago? Are you back on this train at all? Because DDP is talking about how I believe Darlene. I don't think that that video came from her people. And Santiago was saying, well, why didn't she just say that? Like, uh, you know, what's going on there? And, and DDP is pushing back and they're they're beefing over dark. DDP really wants to go after the Dark Army. She wants to include, expand her focus and take it away from just Tyrell and F society and take it to the Dark Army. And once again, when she brings up the Dark Army or the Dark Army and Santiago is involved, we have a problem. Santiago says, no, I'll handle that. Is this almost so obvious now, Josh, that it can't be true? 
I mean, I've, you asked me if I'm still on the Santiago is Dark Army train. I didn't realize that we ever got off. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been, I've been aboard this with you since season two, since the character made his debut. I think that there's been a lot that's been pointing in that direction. And so far, I don't feel thrown off the scent. And the thing that, that sucks for Santiago if he's not Dark Army is I'm always going to believe he is Dark Army until he's like killed in like an act of heroism. Like I will always be suspicious of this guy until proof Proven definitively otherwise. And like, that's the only way I can imagine him being fully absolved because the dude's so shady and he's been so shady from the jump. Like, just not being there when the Dark Army unloaded on everybody in the FBI in China, like, just like casually missing the donuts that morning. Uh, like, there's just a lot there. So, yeah, I'm still tracking that for sure. I'm totally with you. Bad. It's just bad because. You talk about dying in an act of heroism. He seems like the kind of guy that exists until he doesn't need to be uh, in existence anymore. And then the, the Dark Army will take him off the board. And it wouldn't surprise me to see that happen. He's an asset if he is Dark Army. The the fact that he's the one who wanted to release Cisco's sketch and Cisco was dead within a matter of minutes, seemingly, of that sketch going wide. And DDP had pushed back against that. That's always been a problem. And that was a Dark Army asset in Cisco getting wiped off the board by the Dark Army when they no longer saw that they were viable. And I think the same thing could happen to old Santiago here. So that's trouble. That's certainly trouble. <laughs> it's troubling. Yeah. I, just like, I like that you called him Old Santiago. It old just feels, Santiago. Yeah, it just feels like a great name for something. He's a prospector. Uh, uh, yeah, old Santiago was a prospector in the Yukon yeah. Territory in the 1840s. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's all they call him. He was, uh, he was a char- minor character in Deadwood, I think. Uh, but, you know, old Santiago, I'm, uh, I'm a little concerned about the fate of this character. I think that if we're doing a death draft from now he'd certainly be high on my board i don't know speaking of board josh we go to the boardwalk we go to the boardwalk elliot and darlene are going to meet up at the same spot in coney island where they both had their yatta moment when they both had uh had figured out that this was all going to happen and the five nine hack was gonna uh, you know be they were put heroes. into motion they were heroes we could be heroes and this is right before elliot kisses darlene and oh then learns that she's his sister Awkward. and figures out the whole Mr. Robot of it all the next day. So this is a very historic location that they are meeting up. And it's going to seem like some sort of reconciliation between these two. Like, Elliot's going to bring up the snowman, Kevin McAllister, again. He's going to invite Darlene to stay with him because he doesn't want to be alone. And we know how deeply lonely he is. And it seems like a sweet and tender moment. But we know that beneath the surface, uh, Darlene is withholding information from Elliot. And even if you and I agree that ultimately she has his best interests in mind... Like like it's still, you know, this is still a big barrier between the two characters. It is. And hilariously, Darlene says, I wish dad were here right now. He'd know what to do. And Elliot's like, I don't want him to ever show up again. Like, yeah. you know, wishing that dad would show up is not a great thing for Darlene to do in the presence of Elliot. And I'm surprised that went without an unspoken or like a, a moment between the two where it's like, whoops, I didn't mean to say that. Sorry about that. But it, it, I think this is a good reminder. And Darlene, in fact, says it like what don't think for a second that our shitty child childhood is only yours uh, and and these things that happened to Elliot also happened to Darlene and I think that's fascinating to think about because when we talk about White Rose not believing in coincidences and we get back to whether or not you think it's a coincidence that Elliot happened to think of that story about Kevin McAllister on his birthday or whether there might be something more to it it may not be a coincidence that Darlene is his trigger and that Darlene plays this role in the story as well and I think for people that speculate whether Darlene has a greater role in this. We see Angela 
affirmatively, definitively trying to bring out Mr. Robot. We see Darlene maybe doing it on accident just by showing up. I do wonder uh, if there's something more to that. And I know that's been much speculated about. And this scene is certainly fodder for people who believe that that bringing Elliot's father back into the mix is something that Darlene maybe is more interested in doing or that there is more of a structured something to why that happens when Darlene shows up. Elliot says, you're my trigger. And he's speculating just you being around is what brings him back. Well, is that a psychological thing? That's just because she's his sister or is there something more to it than that? Was Elliot programmed? That's something that has been in the background of a lot of discussions we've had about the show. And I think if we're tracking those sorts of things, just like we track with the Krista scene earlier, this is a scene where Darlene being his trigger and Darlene bringing up the Kevin McAllister thing. When Elliot brings it up, Darlene says... Do you want to talk about it? Like, there's a look on her face that that basically says, like, this is a thing. Like, wow, I'm surprised you want to talk about this. Now, on the baseline, it's just, I know that was a major deal for you. You don't usually open up in this way. You've never really talked to you to talk to me about how all that made you feel. So if you want to talk about it, let's do this, brother. Like, let's let's really throw down like that. But I wonder if there's something more to it, because the problem is what we know about the incident. We're basing on Elliot's memory. Does Darlene have a different memory? memory of that day? Is there more to the story that we don't know that Darlene knows about? I think that's something to track when we watch this scene. Uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, it's just something that we have to keep in mind as we as we continue to experience all that season three has to offer for us. Let's experience war. Currency war. <laughs> Currency war. Currency <Yes>. war. <laughs> I love Philip Price. I love that he's back. I love Michael Christopher. I would have loved to have been at that event they had in New York City, Josh, where he's addressing a crowd. Michael Christopher is addressing a crowd of F Society fans, of Mr. Robot fans, as Philip Price. That's like a, a live staging of Philip Price, the character, because seeing him at the, the, the fake G20 in Turkey and 2015 here was amazing. I love seeing Philip Price addressing the crowds. I also love seeing White Rose or, or Minister Zhang's reaction in the crowd as Philip Price is saying, embracing Bitcoin shows their resistance and emphatic rejection of our collective attempt to rescue the global economy. Uh, I love this. I just, oh man, I'm here for every bit of Philip Price and White Rose. The scene that follows this, Josh, is Amazing. It's really, really good. It's great to see these two characters interacting already this early on in the season. A great sign of things to come. We are big fans of the White Rose and Philip Price rivalry here on this podcast. So this is exciting. It's good stuff. Uh, and it's, it really is like a, a back and forth of like, who is the most dangerous man in the room right now or the yeah. most dangerous person in the room, I should say. Uh, it is, it is very intense, this volley back and forth where Price is clearly actually actively pissed like yeah. he is he is furious he's not happy with white rose like sign the accord have your country signed the goddamn accord yeah stop holding out <laughs> stop holding out stop leaning in on the bitcoin thing stop holding anything over my head and white rose basically saying uh your success will always follow mine don't Oof. make me say that again uh and then you know 
Price really threatening the trigger that he has put his finger on, um, at least uh, for the first time in that scene where they're in the rain in season two, where Price says to White Rose, like, I would rather lose than watch you win. I will reign chaos. I will destroy this all. He basically has his finger on the button. He's willing to blow up the whole dam if, if White Rose isn't going to play ball. Damn. Even, even <laughs> Damn indeed, even though White Rose has 11 days until the UN is going to vote to annex the Congo for who knows why exactly still the Colton mines, some kind of mining going on there josh i mean you got to imagine something involving what's going on in the washington township power plant very likely scenario there yeah. um but but in any case uh that's not enough of a threat to deter white rose who then shoots back with a threat of her own oh a uh, couple of shots who, maybe a, f- a few shots, but one of the shots being, uh, you know, potentially aimed at one of her new subordinates, Angela. Yes. Uh, you know, saying, I met with Angela and she was really cool. I liked her. She was very sweet. <laughs> good these are, good yeah, these, these are exact quotes from White Rose. Uh, she was great. <laughs> she was cool. I liked her hair. I did like her eyes and I contemplated firing a bullet to each one of them. Uh, and this does not seem to go well with Philip Price, who is kind of, um, who's, you know, left in stunned silence. Yeah. Probably, you know, seething, seething still, but seething silence. Uh, and White Rose finishes the threat by saying, don't mistake my generosity for generosity. <laughs> a fantastic line that uh, in the hands of a lesser actor could have been botched, could have been completely blown, uh, could have come off as cheesy or hammy, but in the, the hands of B.D. Wong came off fantastically. I just uh, a major pop for me when I heard that. And that's a great scene, Ender. I mean, when it, when it aired last night, it went right to commercial off of that scene. So I, I thought that that was a, a fantastic way to end the escalation of this war. Yeah, I don't know what the Congo's about. It's been in play since the post-credits scene at the end of season one, where Philip Price and White Rose were talking about the Congo and whether or not that was something that was on their agenda. Uh, Philip Price has previously used, as you pointed out, not only the Washington Township plant, but his desire to not let White Rose, quote unquote, win uh, as a thing that's going to impact all this. So we find out by the end of this episode that this particular scene did not uh, did not really make White Rose too happy. We know that White Rose previously felt inclined to kill Philip Price and that White Rose has taken credit for killing the previous CEO of E-Corp when he didn't play along with what she wanted. So I don't know what stage two could do to Philip Price. I don't know. Still don't know if stage two is as we believe it to be or if there's more to it. Is it simply blowing up? that AT&T building uh, in New York, the E-Corp building that's housing all the documents, or is there more to it that White Rose knows about that Elliot doesn't know about? Is Elliot's role just a role in it, and is there something more to it than that? Still remains to be seen, but uh, but yeah, uh, it's escalating. This war of the White Roses is escalating quickly. Quickly, indeed. Yeah. And I mean, just to kind of fast forward to the final scene with White Rose in this episode, like you get kind of a button on this, which is White Rose in a limousine and saying, I want stage two to happen on the day of the UN vote, no matter how it goes. Uh, and the rationale being it's time Philip Price's hand got slapped. Uh, them's fighting words that, you know, that's not just a and if and if that's just a slap on the hand. Oh, my God. I don't want to know what like the full on body shot is like, I right. don't, you know, that's terrifying. <laughs> That's terrifying if stage two for everything that we know it to be so far is just a slap on the wrist. (laughs) 
<laughs> what? Yeah, it's explosions. Like the, yeah, yeah. You know, like, what's the full thing? People potentially dying. Who knows who's in that building? That's just a slap on the wrist. Uh, a terrorist attack. So, yeah, who knows? And and White Rose in the limo says basically like the, the pushback from from White Rose's valet here is stage two is only meant to be implemented if price doesn't come through. As you said, uh, we can finally move our operation to the country's Luol mine. So it, I, there's no way they're moving the particle collider to a mine in the Congo like that. That can't be. So what other operations are in play here with White Rose? I'm fascinated by the White Rose organization and by what the plan is. We still don't know what it is. We get these only little details of it. But again, if this stage two is only a slap on the, the hand, uh, then White Rose's operation and plan, it's got to be pretty freaking big, Josh. Uh, we're talking like the stuff of worldwide domination, like White Rose is turning into a Bond villain before our very eyes. Uh, and yeah. I think this is fascinating. Yeah, I think you you also you made a really good point about the fact that, like you can't just like move a particle collider from right. New Jersey yeah. to the Congo without somebody noticing. Uh and I think that that brings up a, a really important point that's worth reiterating is like we don't know we the full no extent idea. of White Rose's plan. We have no idea. We have no idea what White Rose is really after. It's been and going on since the 90s and like yeah, this is I this you're talking about the 1% of the 1%. So what right. is that? It's world domination. Like it's Bond villain stuff, sure. Yeah, we don't know exactly what's going on there. I mean, it could be, you know, beyond global domination and like universal yeah. domination. Like, Time, we don't, we, right. you know, we don't know what the, what the, universal domination. Right. We don't know what the full scope of those plans are. And just because we saw within the very first movement of this whole season, what's inside the Washington Township power plant, I don't feel like we, like we should be thinking about that and what the implications of what are inside, uh, of, of the contents inside the power plant, what could possibly come out of that. But I don't think that we want to lose sight of other possibilities that are involved in the plan, like the arsenal is open and here's like the big shiny you know you know heavy artillery machine gun that we are looking at but don't neglect the bear trap in the back corner you know what i mean like don't don't forget whatever it is in the picture that we are not looking at so we want to be looking at the big picture not just thinking about the collider i think it's a really important point that you bring up yeah i don't know we just don't know so i'm i'm just fascinated and can't wait to watch more of season three and see how that plays out uh all right so darlene is going to crash with elliot it is going to go awkwardly. <laughs> Good summary. Yeah, not great. Uh, what did you think about this scene? It's almost one take, basically, a switching and panning around the room and actually seeing the switch from Elliot to robot happen. That's a, a great bit of blocking and some chicanery going on there. When I, I guess that, that Rami Malik and Christian Slater were both on set and one was there and then one just popped in and almost into the shoes of the other one in the context of just, just off camera. So I thought it was phenomenal the way this played out. I love the transition. I knew right away before Darlene said, it's you, just the way the hoodie was down. Elliot was strongly looking at Darlene, the way he was confronting her. And yeah, then when the physicality came into it, the it's you was, it was evident right away. And this is not great because clearly then what we're establishing with this scene, right, is that Mr. Robot knows they've been compromised. And that comes up again very shortly here. But Mr. Robot knows about what's happened. He saw Darlene at the back of the computer 
computer. He didn't know why she was there. He didn't remember Elliot inviting her to come over, but he saw her at the back of the computer. So he knows what she did, and he knows that that's in place. Does Elliot know? Open question, but certainly Mr. Robot knows. Well, Elliot's going to figure it out because he's going to go to therapy with Mr. Robot, or at least, you know, he's going to bring Mr. Robot out at therapy. And over the course of the therapy session between Krista and Robot, Robot will talk about how uh, she compromised us. And I think that that will be something that is hanging on Elliot's mind as he rides the subway back. Uh, but that's really yada yadaing through just such a terrific scene. Yeah. Uh, In the, an episode full of them. I know the the robot versus Krista scene is really really cool and feels like uh, like it feels like one of those things that's a long time coming but you never really thought about it ever you know like I never really thought about the day that we would really see robot facing off with Krista but in hindsight of course like it makes a ton of sense that these two characters are linking up eventually I just hope it's the first of many sessions because Christian Slater with Gloria Rubens like this is a very very fun dynamic oh it was on fire like this scene was completely on fire there was a lot of there was a lot of there were a lot of dynamics floating around that room uh, as soon as Christian Slater popped up and even before that when Rami Malek as Christian Slater first says to Krista, like, oh my gosh, Josh, it was so, I, I just couldn't believe it. Like, you should know that nothing's going to come from this. We were just doing, we were doing just fine. I love that you, your interview with Corridana revealed that Rami Malik started doing the Christian Slater impression on set. We saw a glimpse of it in season two in the back of that, uh, the Tyrell vehicle, but we really are just seeing more of it anytime we can see it. I think it's great to see how Mr. Robot looks as Elliot, how other people see Mr robot not how we see mr robot I, anytime we see that it's electric i thought it was especially electric here when you bring into play the dynamic that elliot al already has with krista where he cares about her and where there's a deference there and we often hear elliot's uh, mr robot rantings coming out in his head and he doesn't say them aloud he said them aloud to her before and caused a lot of hurt and a lot of damage and felt awful about it we see a very different dynamic evolve here as soon as mr robot emerges yeah, and it's great, and I hope there's more of it. But the it for the for the moment, the biggest deal is I think it it allows Krista to really see that there's a very different Elliot Alderson. Like there are two Elliots at least, and <laughs> she knows that firsthand now. So that's good. I think that that's a great story development. Um, but it also gets Elliot thinking about what happened. What am I not aware of? What did Robot say that doesn't you know jive with what I'm remembering? Um, and he'll do something about that shortly. But first, he will go home. And he will be reunited with an old friend, not old Santiago. <laughs> it's uh, Lenny Michael Shannon, our friend, Josh, uh, who has gone by many names in this show. But his name is Lenny and he's got Flipper. Yeah, he's got Flipper, Flipper the dog, uh, Flipper the dog, who apparently is not doing well, which makes me upset to hear that Flipper the dog is just like getting sick all over the place. Apparently, hopefully that's just like poor treatment from the owners and not something that is symptomatic of a, of a larger, more fatal, imminent problem with Ugh. Flipper. I have a hard time with that yeah. right now. Let's not talk about it. Let's not trigger you. Let's just say it's, it's, uh, she misses Elliot. That's why it's happening. She misses Elliot. Yeah. That's, well, that's I, it, right? I asked Corridana if, uh, uh, if, talk about this. if, if Mr. Robot is cool enough to take Flipper away like from us permanently. Like yeah. I said, we, you wouldn't just reintroduce Flipper and then take her away permanently, would you? And Corridana's response was, our world exists in a cruel universe. Anything's possible, man. Anything. Ah! 
<laughs> so Elliot's going to kill Flipper. <sighs> no, 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 no. Yeah, I want to speak that into being. Yeah. All right. Uh, so we're not even going to let's not even talk about that as a possibility anymore at all until we absolutely have to. No, I do I not really, want to deal I really with think it. it, it I, I think the reintroduction of Flipper here serves uh, many masters. I like the idea that that it is ultimately more humanizing for Elliot to have the dog. I think that came out in a lot of the interviews and the discussions. I really think that that's important when we're talking about in some ways, not that it needed it, not, and we're on the same page and that we both really liked uh, so much that was going on in season two and where we ended up and, and the ride that it took us to get there. But if the show wanted to bring us back to some of the season one vibes with a shorter season, I mean, the pacing and everything that's happening is going to be more like season one than it is season two. I think they're reestablishing a lot of these things that we saw in season, in season one. We're seeing Elliot back in a corporate environment. We're seeing Elliot talking to Krista in an office and not in jail or something like that. We're bringing Flipper back into his life. We are doing a lot of similar to season one things with Elliot in this episode. Elliot remarks on it when he talks about how I forgot the bad things about that. Like I forgot about how it made me feel when I was doing these things before. Uh, but we're seeing Flipper now and this changes Elliot's character slightly. I mean, Elliot with the dog, that's something that Ray used against him in season two when he had the dog in the jail and was kind of manipulating Elliot into a position where Elliot felt like Ray could talk to him on a human level because he had that dog there. Clearly, Ray had looked at his file and knew about Elliot's weakness or Elliot with Flipper. So that was part of it. What does Lenny Michael Shannon say to him? He says something like, how do you do it? How do you get so lucky even when the world's going to shit? What does he mean by that? Just the fact that he's not in jail anymore? I think so. I think that like he's employed. He's, he's got he's a, a decent job. It seems like, uh, yeah, you know, he's, yeah. he still has his apartment. Yeah. Like, you know, I'd like to see the flip side of this. What is Lenny? Is Lenny Shannon living on the street? Like, like what is it? What I does mean, that end look like? I mean, his, his life was torn apart. I mean, right, you know, yeah. no, you know, break out the tiniest freaking violin on the planet for the guy but like his life is completely ruined uh because he was exposed he was exposed for the piece of shit that he is you know yeah. he was completely outed and so clearly things have gone terribly for him and of course he is uh, not only going to foist flipper upon elliot but also foist his his problems upon elliot as well and look at elliot as the guy who like you've got everything i've got nothing how is that fair how is that possible you know what antonio this is this is how a loser talks this is how a, a total beta, loser beta male he's a cuck yeah. He sucks. He sucks. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that he lost. Uh, I'm glad to see this happen. And if we never see that character again, fine. I would even love though, it. I'd be yeah, thrilled. Even though I like it, uh, it's fine. Uh, but yeah, Flipper's back. And Elliot is kind of back. But Elliot is in the dark on a lot of things. And I'm curious. I'm curious, Josh. Elliot, when he brings Flipper back into the room here, he sits down at his terminal. There's a little hesitancy. But then he starts doing some work. And we see that what Darlene did was mirror his terminal. She she mirrored his monitor such that whatever is being transmitted on his monitor is being transmitted to the FBI. Success. It worked. Congratulations, Darlene. You definitely set Elliot up. But does Elliot know this? We know Robot knew this. You're saying you think Elliot is sure of this. Elliot knows this. 
I think that Elliot is at least sure that he's been hacked. I think that he knows that somebody has been here, and I think that he's got to be putting the dots together. Know that Darlene was just here. He's had this terrible feeling about her. She compromised us. You're not connecting that in the same way? Well, it's interesting because when we've seen Elliot's paranoia about that play out in the past, and we saw this in season one, we saw it again with Flipper late in season one, which is part of the problem that caused all this to happen. Elliot's gone into a full wipe down. He's destroyed his hard drives. He's dri- driven uh, drill bits through them. He's put things in microwaves. He's really taken apart his whole systems and started again. Uh, so I think it's fascinating that if he feels he was compromised here, we don't see him go under that routine. Is that because of the Zoloft or is that because Elliot himself is going? Is, is, is it Elliot? I guess what I'm getting at is, is it Elliot? that we see at the end of the episode in Darlene's apartment, having ultimately used malware to trace the source of whoever was, whoever was tracking him. Or is that Mr. Robot? That's what I want to know. Yeah. I don't know which of those two people it is. The hoodie is down. He takes the hoodie down on the camera at the end of that scene, breaking into an apartment like that, doing that kind of work. That seems like thirsty work for Mr. Robot, not necessarily Elliot. So I am curious, was this Elliot who is Elliot, actually aware or is it only Mr. Robot who's aware the only the other part I'd say is I don't know okay I understand how Elliot sent the email out and that was tracked but how did Elliot set up the malware that was that was that was embedded in the email without the FBI finding we know he's a genius we know once he found out he was owned by the FBI he probably took steps to to go against this but how much is Elliot aware of this and or is it Mr. Robot I'm just I I'm not sure that Elliot himself is fully cognizant of what's going on here Yeah I think that's interesting and I hadn't really even considered that the Elliot we're seeing at the end of the episode standing in Darlene's apartment is anyone other than Elliot. Like, it did not even occur to me that it could be Mr. Robot because we're looking at Rami Malek and not looking at Christian Slater, who is traditionally the avatar for Mr. Robot. But this season has been playing with that. Uh, and we are looking at Elliot on a monitor uh, from the perspective of people who wouldn't necessarily being be seeing Christian Slater as Mr. Robot, though that hasn't really stopped this show from bending with the rules of reality before, I don't think. Um, so that's interesting. It's an interesting point that I hadn't even really considered, but I don't know what I like more in terms of the the story progression. Do I like Elliot being closer to this kind of truth, or do I like Robot being closer to this kind of truth? Uh, I think both ways have, have potentially fascinating consequences. Um, but in terms of how Elliot cooked up the malware uh, without the FBI noticing, I mean, this is, uh, this is you know, the FBI agent who Dom is hooked up with is the same guy who's just like going to be like super into the bare naked ladies and being very easily distracted with goofy shenanigans like that, that I don't know. I mean, it does not strike me as ridiculous that this would go over his radar. I don't know. I read your Corridano article and that was something that Corridano was doing in the writer's room. Are you saying he's not a brilliant man, Josh? No, it's a genius move. It is a really... It is a really funny I like movie. the one-week roll. I'm, I'm all in on the one-week roll. I thought to myself, is this something people were doing in 2015 and I just never got one-week rolled? But uh, I'm all in on that. I think it's really funny. Yeah, but you're right. I don't know. It, it, seemingly, they're they're able to recreate his keystrokes. Like when DDP is going back through, through, she's hitting enter and it's progressing through different parts of what Elliot was doing. So she's able to recreate his action. So I think whatever action he would have taken to create that was not something you had to capture real time. He would have hidden 
his ability to do that. I just remember Robot said to Krista in that scene, now I'm seeing things that he should be seeing too. So on some level, it feels like Robot wants Elliot to know that they were compromised. And Elliot, if they're not talking, Robot finds a way to deliver that message through Krista to Elliot. Elliot does get the message. But on the train, when he gets that message, we see that poster in the background for Will Ferrell and Judy Dench in separation anxiety. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if this is something where he's able to connect these dots or if there is a separation between the two that, that doesn't make that present. I don't know if Elliot found that out. There was hesitation in Elliot sitting back down at his terminal. So if he did find it out, clearly he's like, I'm being watched. I'm going to behave as though I don't know I'm being watched and I'm going to own them and I'm going to find out who was watching me. When you talk about it from a storyline perspective, if Robot knows and Elliot doesn't, I feel like that's really dangerous for for Darlene. If Elliot knows, then maybe that's not so dangerous for Darlene. Maybe Elliot can work together with Darlene to find a way. Maybe he'll be more honest about Tyrell Wellick, for example, if he knows that Darlene just needs to know that so that the FBI can take Wellick down and let Darlene and Elliot off the hook. That's mentioned in this episode, that Elliot can't know because it will compromise the Wellick situation, but I'm not sure the FBI truly knows how desirous Elliot is of doing good, of undoing the hack, of preventing future damage. So maybe if the FBI knew that, maybe if if, if Elliot were to talk to somebody like Darlene about this in a way that the FBI could not prohibit, maybe they would actually get what they wanted. That's something that's fascinating to me, that Elliot really wants what the FBI wants ultimately here. And I think Elliot would be more than willing to throw Tyrell under the bus. I think Elliot would say, let's get this guy off the board. He doesn't want Mr. Robot still working with Tyrell. He says that when he's wondering, like, how are we compromise why do i feel so alive like he's worried that tyrell and robot are still working together which we know is probably happening that's the other thing josh about this time jump right we've jumped five weeks we have no idea what robot and the dark army and elliot and angela what that version of elliot have been up to at night we have no angela in this episode except a passing glance of her seemingly looking over him at e-corp so what's been going on that elliot doesn't know about i i'm just i have no idea so it's interesting to me that if Elliot were to know that the FBI was interested, that Elliot might be able to do what the FBI wants him to do. They should probably just tell him. It'd be great if the first scene in the next episode is exactly that. And Elliot and Dom just like having a face-to-face and sitting down and laying it out and getting on the same page. I'd love to see those two characters in league with each other. And I don't think it's impossible that something like that could happen very soon. Uh, So that'd be great. That'd be really, really cool to see. Yeah, that would be cool to see. Uh, and speaking of cool to see, anything else from this episode that we didn't hit that you wanted to touch on? I'm sure, uh, but I can't think of it. There is a there is a lot going on in this episode, as there is every week on Mr. Robot. Uh, so if we didn't cover it, I'm sorry. Well, yeah, there's a good Reddit thread out there that I want to, we don't need to hit it, but, uh, it's from user signs and wonder if you're in the r slash Mr. Robot subreddit. Uh, it's about theories about what Darlene's fate might be and whether that's being tipped off by the show, things that were going on. There were a couple of big blips on that radar in this episode. So without getting into that too terribly much, I would just say, uh, if you, if you're interested in that sort of thing, hit up that subreddit and check that theory out, uh, as to what Darlene's fate might be in this episode. So there's certainly some elements of that that I find interesting for sure. Yeah, the subreddit for Mr. Robot is a it's a wonderland. It is a treasure trove. It is a source of great things. So go seek it out. It is a happy place. Uh, let us leave this unhappy episode because I'm still but I'm burned about the Joanna Wellick of it all. I'm not feeling great about it. Uh, let's get out of here. Let's just leave. Anything else you got to say, Antonio? 
No, uh, I think we should just uh, look out for the sticky corp bandits. Really, that's what I'm most worried about. The sticky corp bandits. Always got to be afraid of those sticky corp bandits. Uh, follow Antonio. He is on the Twitter bots. He is at AC Mazzaro. How many Z's? How many R's? Two Z's, one R. I am at Round Howard, like Ron Howard, but rounder. We will be back next week talking about the third episode of season three of Mr. Robot. Make sure you are subscribed so you do not miss an episode. Postshowrecaps.com slash robot. Your reviews. Your ratings, they are welcome and appreciated. Thank you so much in advance. 19 of 20 countries have already left us a good review. Only one is holding out. Exactly. You don't want to be that one holdout. Review war. Yeah, no, we certainly appreciate it. And Josh, how can we get all of your coverage of Mr. Robot at THR? That is at THR.com slash MR Robot. Interviews. Podcasts like the one you are listening to now, weekly column with Coradana, great stuff if you are a robot fan, if I do say so myself. With that said, Antonio, I believe this is where I shall say goodbye, friend. I will say goodbye, friend, to you as well. If you're bored before Mr. Robot next week, check out Comet, Sam Esmail's film. We got a great email from a listener we'll get to at some point from LT about the connections between Mr. Robot and Comet. So if you haven't seen Comet, uh, Comet, I recommend you check it out. There's Comet everywhere in Mr. Robot. A little shout out, I think, to Sam Esmail's previous movie, but definitely check that out if you're bored. Sounds good. All right, Antonio, I'll talk to you next week. Bye, friends. Goodbye, friend. <laughs>